This morning's scripture text is taken from Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 13. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles, and I will sing to thy name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, life is fragile and life is short. Forbid that we would think in terms of maximizing our worldly delights here when you hold out to us 10,000 ages of infinite joy. I pray that husbands and wives would get that perspective as they contemplate stupid decisions. And I pray, O God, that you would humble us, make us willing to embrace the pain appointed for our lives, whether it's physical or emotional or relational. You give unto each day what you deem best, each part, its pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. Thank you for Christ now, whom we want to exalt in this message. So come, Holy Spirit. You love to make much of Jesus. And so help me be faithful to this word, I pray, in Christ's name. Amen. There's a connection now between this message and all the messages on Romans 9 up to this point. And the link is in verse 8 of chapter 15 and verse 6 of chapter 9, because both of these verses assert that the Word of God has not and will not fall. Verse 6 of chapter 9 says, It is not as though the word of God has failed. And verse 8 of chapter 15 says, Christ has come to confirm the promises given to the fathers. The word of God has not failed. The promises are confirmed. Now the difference between 15.8 and 19.6 is that the ground of the 
unfailing promises of God in verse 6 is the doctrine of unconditional election. And the ground of the unfailing promises of God in chapter 15, verse 8, is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ in history. Let's see that. Verse 6 of chapter 9, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why? For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, there's an elect spiritual Israel within physical Israel for whom the promises most certainly by design come true. We unfolded that for weeks about how God has chosen his own among Israel and outside Israel so that his promises for them absolutely never fail. Then in verse 8, we read of chapter 15, I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. That means he became a Jewish Messiah to serve Israel. On behalf of the truth of God, to confirm the promises given to the fathers. In other words, the promises are confirmed and made stable and strong because Christ came into the world. Now, this is really crucial. We need to fly a banner over all of our talk in Romans 9 on the doctrine of unconditional election. And the banner we need to fly over it is this. Never, ever think of God's unconditional election except in relationship to the saving work of Jesus Christ in history. Never think of election except in relationship to the saving work on the cross of Jesus Christ in history. Consider this text, Ephesians 1.4. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Consider 2 Timothy 1.9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Jesus Christ before the ages began. Consider Ephesians 3.11. God acted in accordance with the eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we are elect in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. We are appointed for grace in Christ Jesus before the ages. He carries out his purposes in Christ in history, though the purposes were framed in eternity. We must never, ever think of the glorious and precious doctrine of unconditional election except in relationship to Jesus Christ, Good Friday, Easter, Pentecost, because Christ is never an afterthought. Christ was in the mind of God as soon as election was in the mind of God. Christ knew that he would save through Jesus all those he made his own in eternity. And it is only through Christ that we may have any confidence that we are his. Don't ever abstract doctrines from one another, especially these two, election 
and redemption in Christ. Keep them very close together or you will get things very skewed. You will begin to draw out implications that are not in the Bible at all. Keep election connected with the saving work of Jesus Christ. So, there are two reasons for why the word of God has not fallen. One, the free and sovereign election of his own to save whom he will. And two, because Christ came into the world and undertook to save the elect. And there would be nobody saved if Christ had not come, no matter what election says. So it's Christmas now. It's the Sunday before Christmas. And we should put a Christmas twist on this, which is very easy to do in verses 8 and 9. We should ask, why is it good news that Christ came into the world on behalf of the truth of God? You see that in verse 8? Christ came on behalf of the truth of God. Why is that good news? Let's read it one more time. Verse 8. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and, this includes you, for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Now take it very, very precisely. I say Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. That means he was born under the law, born of a Jewish virgin, Jewish blood in his veins, coming as a Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people to serve them, to serve them. You see the word serve? That's really, really important. To serve them because it calls to mind a text. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The service here is not just any ordinary service. This is a service of death. This is a service that he put himself on the cross, became a ransom for many. That's the service being spoken of here in verse 8. And then the main statement is... On behalf of the truth of God, I say Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God. That's the main statement that God's truth would be established. He came to serve and serve in such a way that God's truth would be established. And then two purposes of establishing God's truth. The first one, to confirm the promises given to the fathers. That's at the end of verse 8. To confirm the promises given to the fathers. And here's the second one at the beginning of verse 9. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. So you have the main statement of why Christ became incarnate as a human being 
to serve man and vindicate God. Now be careful here. Those are not separate or distinct. God serves us or Jesus serves us precisely in vindicating the truthfulness of God. It's not as though I will serve you in lots of ways and then I will do another thing over here. I will vindicate the truth of God. That's not the way to think about it. The way to think about it is I will serve you by upholding, confirming, vindicating the truth of God. That's the way we are served. And so I have one question to ask in this message and four answers to give. Why are we well served by the vindication of the truth of God through Jesus Christ? Why should I at Christmas time feel it is good news that the Son of God comes precisely to vindicate God's truthfulness? Why should that land on me as thrilling and cause people to write a hundred carols? Why should I decorate my house because of that? Reason number one. It is good for us that Christ came on behalf of the truth of God because this shows God is true first and foremost to himself. It is good news because it shows that God is true first and foremost to himself. Let me try to show you this. It is noteworthy in verse 8 that Christ confirming the truth of God is one thing and the result of confirming the promises is another thing. Read it with me and you'll see what I mean. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God. And now comes a purpose statement or a result to confirm the promises given to the fathers. So you have on behalf of his truth and then you have something flowing from that, namely the promises get confirmed. So these are not identical. Now, you might say, oh, yes, they are. They're just the same thing. It's just repetition to come on behalf of his truth. And to confirm Christ's promises or his promises are just the same. Two ways of saying the same thing. There is something deeper in God's truth than his keeping promises. God is true before he makes any promises. God is a God of truth before he speaks to man anything. Now, this is important. It's important because if we don't think about this, we will probably not conceive of the attributes of God except in relation to us and thus make far too much of ourselves. 
If the only way you think about God's attributes is in relation to you, you make too much of yourself. And we run the risk of demeaning God's self-sufficiency, that he is gloriously and absolutely God and true apart from and without you and me. God is God and gloriously God and true with all of his attributes before we ever arrive on the scene. And if we were to vanish out of existence, he would be God and infinite and ultimate reality would stand. And this little echo of his mercy called man would not diminish him in the least if we disappeared. So we need to think about God's truth being upheld before we think of his promises being confirmed. This is really relevant for us because God is true to himself first before he's true to his promises. And if he were not true to himself, he would not be true to his promises. Think about it this way. God is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. And he could say it because he's the son of God. I am truth. In other words, God never checks with a standard outside himself to test whether something he's thinking or saying or about to do will be true. He never consults a standard other than himself by which Truth is defined. He never says, now I want to speak truth. I want to be a God of truth so that they'll admire me. So he goes to the truth standard and says, yes, I'm about to say this. It conforms with that. And therefore, I will speak that and they will admire me because it conforms with that. That is totally pagan. God is truth. He defines truth. He doesn't consult with it and then speak it. He is it. We measure all truth by him and what he is and says. This is absolutely crucial that we keep ourselves out of the center here. And that God establish himself as true and contrary to philosophers like Protagoras 400 years before Jesus. Never say, man is the measure of all things. But always say, God is the measure of all things. Therefore, the first and most fundamental attribute of God in relation to all of this is not that he keeps his promises, but that he's true to himself. He is the truth and he will always act in accordance with his infinite value and beauty and truthfulness. And thus creates a standard by which we measure all things. Now, if you need a verse outside this verse to confirm this, listen to this one. It's 2 Timothy 2, 12 to 13. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains Faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 
I have heard so many take those words and say, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, meaning faithful to us. That's not what it says. It says, if we deny him, he will deny us. And then it says, he cannot deny himself, which is why he will deny us if we deny him. You see what the standard is there? The plumb line? It's not the value of man. Believe me that. It is the infinite value, worth, truth, and glory of God. If we put ourselves against that, he will put himself against us. He is the test. He is the line. And if we lean on him, if we value him, if we cherish him, he will be for us. Because he's for himself. And that's what Jesus came to establish first. He cannot deny himself because most fundamentally he is the truth. So verse 8 again. Christ has become a servant on behalf of the truth of God. And he did us good in that. He did us good. Why? I wonder right now if you feel that as good news. Let me try to say why it should be good news in one sentence. If God gave his Faithfulness, loyalty, commitment to anything or anyone who is less than infinitely worthy of his faithfulness and loyalty and truthfulness, he would be false. And all our dreams of everlasting joy in the presence of the true God would be Useless. That's why it's good news. This is foundational. We need to realize that our hopes, our dreams of everlasting joy in the presence of the true God hang on him being true to himself because he is infinite truth. Reason number two. It is good for us that Christ came on behalf of God's truth because this does confirm the promises. So now we've moved from God to promises. This does confirm the promises. It's right there in verse 8, and it's not the same as what we've just been talking about. I'll read it again. For I say, Christ has become a servant, that is, he was incarnate as a Jewish Messiah, a servant to the circumcision, on behalf of the truth of God. Now, why? What will flow from that? To confirm the promises given to the fathers. So all the promises of God are true. Because God is true and because Christ came to confirm them as true. Two reasons, not just one reason. All the promises of God are true because God is true and Christ confirms him is true and because Christ now moved into history and... Now, what did he do? 
What did he do to secure these promises for us? Answer, he bought them with his blood. He poured out new covenant blood so that all the covenants, all the promises would be bought for sinners like me. This is the gospel. This is the greatest thing in the world about Christmas and Good Friday. If the promises are to be mine, how can they be mine? I'm a sinner. God is angry at me in my sin. I deserve Death, not promises. And yet, here I am, happy on Christmas Day, fully convinced I will live with Jesus and the Holy God in happiness forever and ever. Where does that kind of insane, unjust hope come from? And it comes from one place. Christ's death in my place. By which he bought all the promises of God for me. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. You know this, you know the sentence you would all go to to re-say how the promises relate to Jesus. We'd all go to 2 Corinthians 1.20. With these familiar words, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why through him we utter our amen to the glory of God. If you, let's do it this way. Prayer. Kids, listen up. This may have been a little bit complex so far. These next two minutes are for kids, all right? Every child in this room who can understand any English at all will know what prayer is. When we bow our heads and we ask God for things and thank God for things and praise God for things. Now, the way to think about prayer, kids, is this. When you pray, you are claiming promises. God made promises and you're saying, now, God... According to your promise, because you've promised, I ask that you would help me. Because the promise says, I will help you, I will strengthen you, I will hold you up. But now here's the, here's the key. Why do your mommy and daddy teach you to close your prayers with, in Jesus' name, amen? Is that just words? Are those just words in Jesus' name? Amen. Those are not just words. You know why I have taught all of my children not to say, Amen, throw it away. But rather to say, in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the reason, kids. You don't deserve God's promises. You and I are sinners. We've all done bad things. I don't deserve for God to do one nice thing for me. And here I am asking him to. Well, who do I think I am? Answer, nobody. Who deserves the promises? Answer, Jesus deserves the promises. Jesus died for the promises. Jesus lived for the promises. Jesus rose for the promises. And if I will pray in 
Jesus' name, they can be mine. End of kid's sermon. Though I hope some more is understandable. Oh, prayer is precious at Christmas time. We would not have any answered prayer had Jesus not come into the world and confirmed the promises made to the fathers. And how did he confirm them? With his death, he bought them. And so when we get any of them, it's because they come in Jesus' name. Will you live in Jesus' name? Will you pray in Jesus' name? Do everything like Colossians 3, 17 says, in Jesus' name. That's reason number two why it's good news that he came on behalf of the truth of God. Number three, it is good for us that Christ came on behalf of the truth of God because the promises he confirms are promises of mercy. So now we move from God to promises to mercy, getting more specific all the time. Look at verse 9 and you'll see where I get this. Actually, read 8 and 9. I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. Now here it comes. And it spills over. It spills over. From Israel onto the Gentiles. For the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. There it is. For his mercy. So when Christ dies for sinners and purchases the promises of God for all who will trust in him, that mercy that he just bought for us is so great, it not only spills onto Israel, it spills over Israel onto the world. And you get the great commission, go make disciples of all nations. This is not just a Jewish thing. This is a, a world thing. And we Gentiles, who are now grafted in to the true Israel, glorify God for his mercy. The promises are promises of mercy and oh how Christians love mercy I think if I were to give any test in this room this morning and there would be others but the one I would give this morning if you wonder if you're a Christian I would ask do you love mercy and I mean love getting it when you don't deserve it and giving it when others don't deserve it. Do you love mercy? I'll tell you, the saints of the Old Testament and the saints of the New Testament exulted in mercy. I was reading this week in the Minor Prophets, as many of you are, as we are hastening to the year end, reading through those prophets, some of them one a day. And I was reading Micah. Now, Micah has about four very glorious and familiar passages in it, and then a lot of unfamiliar and perplexing things. But one of those glorious, familiar passages is this. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. That's Micah 7, 18. 
And it's significant because we are going to sing a song in just a few minutes at the end of this message based on those verses written by uh, Samuel Davies. Samuel Davies was the president of Princeton University right after Jonathan Edwards completed his three-month tenure as president before he died of a smallpox vaccination, before they had it perfected at age 54. And then they looked to Samuel Davies to step into this new college to train ministers for the word. And they chose this pastor who had been gloriously involved, by the way, in bringing black slaves liberated together with white people in one church in Virginia in a very controversial way. And one of the stories I love about Samuel Davies, Samuel Davies went to Britain one time to raise money for this new college, and he was granted to preach before King, I think it was Charles, might have been James, I'll lose my kings, But he was preaching before the king. And as he preached, he was a latter-day Puritan and full of fire and loved the centrality of God. And the king was whispering continually to his wife. And there came a point where Samuel Davies paused and looked at the king from this high pinnacle of a pulpit like you know in Britain and said... This is the word of God. And when the lion roars, the beast of the field shall be silent. (laughs) That's, That's the kind of person Samuel Davies was. And the hymn goes like this. Great God of wonders, all thy ways are matchless, godlike and divine. But the fair glories of thy grace, more godlike and unrivaled shine, more godlike and unrivaled shine. Who is a pardoning God like thee? And who has grace so rich and free? And who has grace so rich and free? That's what we're going to sing. But I have another point before we get there. Last point, number four, briefly. It is good for us that Christ came on behalf of the truth of God because the essence of the mercy in the promises rooted in God, the essence of the mercy is God, not his gifts. Oh, how we love the gifts of God. They are precious beyond language. And we will sing of them forever. It is not wrong to love the gifts of God. And I mean things like forgiveness, justification, sanctification, health, family. It's not wrong to love the gifts of God. It's wrong to love them any other way than as a means of loving God. For God. I mean, ask yourself, why do you want to be forgiven for your sins? And if you only answer, well, for psychological relief, because guilt feels really bad, 
or escape from hell because that hurts and I would just as soon be elsewhere. Or reunion with family in heaven. If that's all you answer, you don't honor God. You will honor God. Well, what does it say in verse 9? It says, glorify God for his mercy. See that? The first part of verse 9. Glorify God for his mercy. How does that happen? It happens when we taste mercy not as a means to have pleasures in sin or innocent pleasures in people or psychological relief. It happens when we taste mercy as the opening of the doorway to God. A Christian is a person who has been forgiven for his sins in order that sin might be moved out of the way so he can enjoy God. That's what a Christian is. Not a person who has had sins moved out of the way to enjoy Sin, or moved out of the way to enjoy Christmas presents, or moved out of the way to enjoy health, or moved out of the way to enjoy job, fame, reputation, money. That's not a Christian. There are a lot of people, I think, that have taken God and used him like a cuckold. You don't know that word. That's an old-fashioned word for a husband whose wife is unfaithful. We take him, we say, I'll take your money. I'll take your forgiveness. I'll take your escape from hell. But heaven without you would be just fine. Just put a lot of girls there. Or boys. Or toys. That's not a Christian. Isn't it awful? So here's the last and final point of why it is so precious that Christ has come into the world on behalf of the truthfulness of God to establish the promises which are full of mercy, whose essence is God and not his gifts. So I close by pleading with you, may God awaken your heart to feel the sinfulness of your own life and the sweetness of a great Savior. May you know your own sin and feel bad about it. And then may you find wonderful relief for those awful, weighty guilt feelings by a great Savior. And may he then ravish your heart with himself, release your tongue to praise, and release your hands to show mercy to others. Father in heaven, we love grace. We love mercy. Our lives hang on mercy. And we love the mercy most of all that has opened the door to fellowship with you. You are the end of our quest, not your gifts. All your gifts are precious because they bring us home to you. So be honored now as we sing together about your great and wondrous grace. Amen.